Hey, what's going on? Happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to a holiday edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Uh, I believe joined by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, Drance is broadcasting from uh, remotely from an undisclosed location on the holiday. And I believe we got him on just literally as the intro was sounding off. So we, we have you there, Drancer? By the skin of our teeth, okay. Canucks talk is on the air. We're going to need to bring those levels down somehow, but I think oh. we're going to, at least we have you on the air. So that's very, very exciting uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a holiday edition. So only on for the hour, an abbrevi- abbreviated edition here of Canucks talk on, uh, on a holiday Monday. But there's a lot to get into. There was a lot happening for the Canucks over the weekend, and we are at a very... Uh, a pivotal point of the NHL calendar with the preseason over uh, last day of waivers before the regular season, all of that. And now game one of the regular season on the horizon on Wednesday. So lots so, to get into. Uh, go Jay, ahead. How are, how are my levels now? Can Better. I, can I, can I squirrel our show yes. in a very classically Canucks go talk for direction? It. Go for it. Okay. So today is one of my favorite days of the year because I'm, oh, by the way, sorry, actually, before I do this, let me just say this. I told my family about our Thanksgiving dinner draft. Yeah. And they all thought that I was cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to your family. family. My family did not have my back. They were like, you can't pick Turducken if he's already picked turkey. That's incredible. That's incredible. Figured I'd tell... Figured I'd tell you that our fantasy draft caused like a true devolution into a wild argument over Thanksgiving dinner with my family. That's very um, good. No, but not only am I and am I stuffed with turkey, not turducken, despite my draft pick. Um, but but we're basically right at the point where we've had the final waiver day. Yep. And now teams have to set their opening night lineup, and and because of some. Clever tricks that the Vancouver Canucks pulled off themselves in the 2010, the fall of 2010, ahead of the 2010-11 season. Once you set your opening night lineup, you're stuck with it for 24 hours. Like, you can't make changes before opening night if you you play game one. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 24 hours. I, I think it might be actually you have to play a full game. So even though the Canucks play on the second day of the season, I think until midnight their roster's frozen. Although, don't quote me on that. I'd have to double check. So... This is interesting because the Canucks added a pretty high salary player yep. in Sam Lafferty. Now, Sam Lafferty's not a high, high salary player. He's $1.15 million. In fact, one of the reasons he went for such a haul at the deadline was sort of the Brandon Hagel comp, right? The idea that a guy who's, you know, a, maybe a top nine quality player, although I don't think that's really what he is, uh, if they're locked up for two years, play a premium position, are also right-handed, then you play a, pay a premium for them as a deadline acquisition, which is what happened with Lafferty, who then didn't make an impact um, in the playoffs or for the Leafs down the stretch. Canucks are able to jump the waiver queue and acquire him for a fifth-round pick. You you bring in Lafferty and have him replace a, a Niels Amon or, um, you know, a, a Jack Studnika, and you add about 400 k to your cap bill. 
uh, at a pretty crucial point in the offseason. Uh, now, we talked a lot and we talk a lot about cap projections and the route to compliance and on and on over the course of the summer. And every time we do it, Jamie, I always say, you know, but we'll have to wait to see what injuries crop mm. up, what happens. And it looks like in the Canucks last two preseason games, Guillaume Brisebois takes a hit from Brandon Tanev and we don't really have an update on it. Rick talk it declined to even use day-to-day when I checked with him the last update we got on Brisebois after the game on Friday. Carson Soucy also leaves that game with an apparent knee injury. That's what it looked like. Um, and and week-to-week is the update that we got yesterday. So And then we've got Ilya Mikheyev skating in a full practice with the team on Saturday, and we'll see what, where his status ultimately lands. Or I guess it was Sunday. Sunday, yeah. Yeah. And we'll see where his status ultimately lands. But it looks like he's pretty close, right? Certainly not a candidate to go on LTI. No. Uh, given given his value to this team and given how close he appears if he's now doing full practices. So I'm talking us through this because the way you account for these injured players becomes really interesting. And once a team has effectively shown their cards with waiver decisions, we, we have a pretty good sense that those players aren't on the team. Like we, we know now that, for example, Niels Hoaglander can't not be on the opening night right. li- lineup because he'd have to clear waivers first. And Jack Stadnika can be removed from the roster. So uh, process of elimination, we have basically the Canucks numbers. And usually at this time of year, I'm able to, and I want to note, this isn't a perfect science, projecting a team's cap situation, given the co- complexities of real-time LTI and, and on and on. Um, it is very difficult to do using only public data. Um, however, I kind of am decent at this. So, like, as an example of one thing that can be difficult is a player like Guillaume Brisbois can go on a, a type of IR because he wasn't a full-time NHL player last season called uh, season opening IR, right? Mm-hmm. And in on season opening IR, Guillaume Brisbois' cap hit gets prorated based on the number of days he spent on the roster. Do I know the exact number of days? I do, 58. Do I know the exact do I know the exact cap implications of of that? Yeah, I do. It's uh 242k um and then I even have the rest of the numbers. 242k $973. That's Amazing. what his cap hit will be on SOIR. So I I'm going pretty deep here. And usually at this time of year, I'm able to tell you exactly where the Canucks are at and tell you what their rough LTI capture is within, you know, a, a, a decent number. Not like not like within $1,000, although I once got to within $1,000, but like certainly within 50 k or so. And here's the rub. Here's why I wanted to walk us all through this. This year, I actually can't get the Canucks to compliance. Okay? All right. Now... Now, in saying that, I don't mean that the Canucks aren't going to be compliant. They will be. Uh, that's not... A story, but there's some factor that the club was aware of in making the Lafferty trade that I don't have access to, that I can't see based on what's publicly right. available. And I wonder, I wonder, like the most logical conclusion that I can reach is that Susie may end up on LTI. Right. Yeah. And and so again, this isn't me reporting anything. This is me doing the math, right? And and working backwards from data. Um, you know, it's it's possible that Susie's camp doesn't even know at this point, right? Or that they're still working through some things. But that would be my that there's something going on that I can't see yet. Whether it's an additional player injury or or uh, whether maybe it's maybe it's just that Breeze was not actually that hurt. 
right? And maybe Breeze was the seventh defenseman, and so he doesn't have to go on IR at all and is just the seventh defenseman and has made the team. Um, but it's but it's difficult for me to figure out uh, unless there's an additional shoe to drop here uh, with those sort of being the two most likely candidates that I'm looking at. Well, I just figured it was worthwhile to walk us through that because at some point – very shortly, the Canucks will tell us or the league will tell us exactly what the Canucks opening night lineup looks like. And when they do, uh, you know, don't be surprised to either see Brisebois be completely healthy or Susie maybe even start the season on LTI, which would rule him out until the first week of November. Well, and you use the word, you know, another shoe to drop. And basically, that's that's what it sounds like to me that you're laying out, that there is another shoe to drop of some sort, right? Whether it's something as innocuous as, you know, Breezebois not that injured and he's going to be healthy and on the roster, or a Susie LTIR, or something like that. There is a, a kind of missing piece of the puzzle to make yeah. it all fit here that we're still waiting to see. Now, one question I have is... You know, and I'm not the uh, the cap aficionado that you are in terms of the rules of setting your opening night roster and all of that. But when we when we start talking about other shoes to drop, you know, we've been talking, you know, the the waiver wire seagulls, especially with right handed defensemen, <laughs> two really interesting names. Part of the group going on waiver yesterday, and Zach Bogosian and Dylan Coughlin. You know, Dylan Coughlin in particular, a guy we had talked about on the show. Neither one claimed at all, let alone by the Canucks, and I still. Still look at the way the team's lineup is shaping up with, you know, Noah Juleson in the, you know, in, in the mix on the third pair, potentially. And I still wonder, is there another shoe to drop? Could there be a trade of some sort in the works? We saw the Sam Lafferty deal for a bottom six forward. But like that's a question that I still have is, OK, the waiver wire claim didn't materialize. Is there a trade to that could materialize on the right-handed defense uh, question? And, and my question for you isn't so much like, are they working on a trade? But it's how would that affect at this particular time of year, right? Like today and tomorrow when you're setting your opening night lineup, how does a trade and that dynamic factor into all of this? Man, it, it, it's just really difficult because there's just not much space in the system, right? I mean, you have only four teams that are projected currently by capfriendly.com to have less than 78 million uh, projected cap they yeah. already accounted for. So that's wild. Uh, a trade that sheds your that sheds money is very difficult to pull off. And I think that's why too you saw a relatively inactive waiver deadline, right? Yeah. Um there were some interesting claims. Like there were some interesting claims. I think what's interesting to me is the Canucks jumping the waiver queue to get Lafferty. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with going and getting a player that you rate higher than market, uh, obviously. And I, I think Lafferty's, I mean, I think Lafferty's, uh, you know, an upgrade on Niels Amon. But, like, I also think he's in that tier. You know, I don't think mm. he's materially different, uh, except that he wins more draws, right? He, he's got the skill that I keep talking about Niels Amon needing to develop if he's going to be an everyday player. Um, he's got that skill, and that and that'll help, but... You know, I, I do think we're talking about a, a more or less replacement level fourth line player who had a shooting uh, percentage binge last season in Chicago, and that caused his value to be inflated. Uh, if you go watch Lafferty's goals from last year, too, like I remember doing it ahead of the deadline because I was like, man, this guy's counting stats. This guy's going to get a haul. Could he get a first rounder? I, I remember looking at it and being like, oh, man, I, I think there's a lot of cluster luck in that profile. Uh, 
which isn't to say he's not going to be a helpful acquisition for the Canucks. Uh, he's probably now their second or third fastest skater up front. They desperately needed that. Yeah. His work rate is unquestioned, unquestioned. Uh, and I think that'll endear him to Canucks fans. But, you know, the, the profile of like the, there's a there's a certain profile of guy that we've seen pop off of waivers. And, and we saw some teams claim guys like some of the guys that stand out to me from recent history. Tolvanen would be one of them. Obviously. Right? Yeah. But 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 going back further, like Michael Grabner. Right. Like Grabner would be a classic, was claimed off waivers by a team at the bottom of the standings and then scored 30 goals for them. Right. Uh, so that's sort of high draft pedigree winger, um, you know, as a as a player type, as an archetype of uh, of a type of player that's tended to return um, good value to the team claiming him. And, you know, I, I guess Grigory Denisenko, a player that the Florida Panthers drafted when I was with them, would be sort of the best example, the closest mm-hmm. fit to that archetype. And, and Vegas claimed him. And then we saw Pittsburgh make a claim today. John Ludwig, another guy who the Panthers drafted while I was with them, actually. Um, but John Ludwig would fit into that sort of Forsling, Mahura-type mold of, like, an upside defenseman who, who, hey, maybe he can figure it out at 22-23, right? Something that he didn't have. Lassie Thompson, I suppose, who got claimed and then... Reclaimed, yeah. <laughs> Reclaimed by the Ottawa Senators would also sort of be in that mold. Those those are sort of waiver claims that I like to see teams roll the dice on. It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. But if you have the space, um, if you have the space to take that type of gamble, I think it's worth doing. Uh, you know, which sort of brings us back to the Lafferty trade a little bit. And and for me, I don't want to do my whole song and dance about like the in a vacuum yeah, yeah, versus yeah. out of a vacuum. Like I'm I'm sick of it. You know, I'm sick of it. People are sick of hearing it. And, and you know how I feel about it. You know that I don't think that this is the sort of um, deal that makes sense for the Canucks. Uh, even if I think it's the sort of deal that makes sense for the Canucks, <laughs> like it's directionally, I think it's misguided, even if the specific price paid for the specific player is totally fine and fair. Um, but I do sort of wonder about a team that has like too many guys, right? And not enough dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Deciding to effectively trade for another guy as opposed to taking a free shot on a guy that could be a dude. <laughs> on a potential dude. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like, the, I, I, I would just rather take the free shot on a maybe dude. Yeah. Than pay for a guy. Well, the interesting thing about that <laughs> equation, too, is the thing is like. The Canucks have openings in their top six, right? You know, now totally. maybe that changes when Mikheyev comes back, but you're still going to have Phil Giuseppe there. You have a spot where you could see, okay, hey, maybe there's some que- this guy, high skill, draft predigree, all that, maybe some questions about his two-way game. I feel like you have spot a spot or two in the lineup where you could kind of insulate them and take that swing on the offensive upside. But, you know, my reaction to the Lafferty deal, and you're right, beyond like how it fits into a pattern of things we've seen from the Canucks before, I just think it tells us a lot about the 
the need that Rick Tockett, and I would extend this to Canucks management too, because obviously they're the one executing the trade, but the need for size that, that we've talked about, right? Like we've seen the process of Rick Tockett trying to find size, trying to find physicality in this lineup, right? With moving Dakota Joshua around after being really hard on him early uh, in training camp and the preseason, you know, splitting up Beauvillier and Garland uh, with the on the Pew Suter line because they don't have, they don't bring enough size. Like to me, that's was my big takeaway here is just a real emphasis on a specific type of guy. And yeah, maybe, you know, Neil Zaman could be that or Jack Nico was showing flashes of that. But I think this was, okay, this guy's bigger and faster than them. And those are two things we're really missing. So we're going to go out and get it. Like that's what the, the Lafferty trade says to me more than anything else about this team is just the extreme desire for more of the specific physical attributes that he brings in this lineup. Well, and never underestimate a coach's desire to have a right-handed face-off yep. guy in their lineup, right? Yep. I mean, I, I guarantee you that the Canucks coaching staff is thrilled to have added Sam Lafferty just because of the versatility that having a, a right-handed guy who can win draws. And I mean, he's and who not can, like an ace. Yeah, but, but he, and he's like a credible option on the PK, right? It's not like yeah. a, a, a hope and a prayer to send him out there on the penalty kill. He's a guy who's done that job. Again, not at like an ace level, but at a credible NHL level. And now you're adding that to your lineup. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that's what they're... I think that's probably a huge part of this, too. But you're right. Sees, uh, size, speed, profile. I mean, he checks a lot of those boxes. Former Pittsburgh Penguin. Yes. Right. <laughs> another uh, box checked. Yeah. An, another Pittsburgh guy uh, for the Pittsburgh guys. So, uh, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you're expecting, uh, we, we also do this thing after trades. Like, remember the Kratzoff deal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are legendary so deal. Legendary yeah, deal. But, but the reaction in the, in the, immediate offing was like what a steal and it's mm-hmm. like no there, there's a reason for that price right like there's a reason uh Lafferty was going to be waived Lafferty mm-hmm. was going to be waived the the Maple Leafs wanted to give Fraser Minton that shot um it may only be a nine game shot and shout out to another Vancouver guy done well uh out of Toronto that's awesome uh really cool for him but you know anyway the point being that Lafferty was going to be waived um he was a net negative in the Maple Leafs playoff lineup last year. I, I, I think expectations should be kept very realistic for for what Lafferty can bring here. I, I really think it's basically an Amon upgrade. That That's how yeah. I sort of try and caption it. It's like a big-bodied guy who's, who can skate fast but isn't necessarily like – it's not that he's gritty. It's not that he's not gritty. He is. He's got a high work rate, but he's not like a, a big physical presence. He's not like right? a bruiser. Yeah. There's not that boom that yeah. comes with him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sort of more in that mold of, like, a guy who can check, you know? A, mm-hmm. a guy who can check. And I'd also look very, very firmly askance at his goal totals uh, from last year. You know, this is a guy who really had scored very sparingly. Um, you know, 11 goals in his first 130 NHL games, uh, you know, on his first almost 200 shots and then last year scored 12 on just over a hundred. Right. I just, I'd keep, uh, if you're looking at, if you're looking at Lafferty and keeping your expectations to the level of, you know, he, he could be a, a, a meaningful upgrade on Neil Zaman, then I think you'll get the player you're hoping for. 
Uh, if they're higher than that, I, th- I think you'll be disappointed. Yeah. And I mean, you never know. Look, we've seen uh, Rick Tockett move, you know, Dakota Joshua up the lineup at different points. Obviously, Phil Giuseppe, who has a higher skill profile, but he's a guy who's gotten a chance. Like, I could see Lafferty getting a shot up the lineup at some point, not necessarily because his skill set demands it, but because Tockett does sometimes value uh, those physical characteristics and he'll he'll give those guys a shot uh, to play up the lineup. But right now, it yeah. seems like he's slotting in fourth line, kneels him on uh, replacement. And, you know, we'll see D- exactly Giuseppe, what it looks though, like. Giuseppe has hands. Thing, Giuseppe has well, hands. And, and a meaningful scoring profile. Yeah. I mean, one thing about Giuseppe is what's really held him back has been opportunity. Like, Giuseppe's five-on-five scoring profile is, like, very much third line. You know, like mm. very much middle six in terms of the rate at which he's produced points in his NHL career. It's just that he's never been able to get the opportunity to stick doing that for long enough to amass like that 35 point season that I think is a perfectly reasonable ex- expectation for him, by the way, going into this year, if he can maintain that job on Miller and Besser's wing. Like I'm absolutely not fading the the, the possibility that. Phil DiGiuseppe is a 35 plus point guy for Vancouver if he if he's able to run with this opportunity over 82 games. So some of the other minor moves are around the fringes that uh, that the Canucks make over the weekend. They wave Jack Stadnika and Christian Willan and both of them clear so they'll go down and join the Abbotsford Canucks. They also send Niels Amon down and you know talk it was asked about both of those decisions yesterday basically said it's tough for both of them because he likes both of those players. You know Stadnika had a great camp but basically he called it a cap thing and a roster numbers uh, thing. They also call up Akito Hirose from Abbotsford. So with Carson Soucy week to week, Breezebois' status a little bit up in the air, the seven healthy defensemen that we know for sure are healthy that the Canucks have right now, Hughes, Hronick, Ian Cole, Tyler Myers, Hirose, Juleson, and Cole McWard still around, although he was practicing as a forward uh, because of some forward absences yesterday. So he seems like right now he Did would be on the outside. Did there? Hmm? I did not include, include Brisbois as a as a guy we know I is healthy. Brisbois, I think Brisbois needs to be included. Okay, because so, just just because honestly, the, you know, in, in a world where in a world where Susie isn't on LTI, then the easiest solution is McWard down. He doesn't require waivers, yep. and Brisbois is your seventh. Right. If Breeze so was the, healthy enough to the, be your seventh. It, it's got to be one of those two, I'm pretty sure. Like, uh, maybe there's something else I'm not accounting for, but the math strongly hints at one of those two outcomes here. But it strongly points to, you know, a couple of guys at one at forward and one at um, uh, on the blue line that we weren't necessarily sure would get a shot to start the team, or certainly with Hirose. Like, Hirose looks poised to play in game one after having a pretty nondescript preseason and training camp and not getting even a ton of looks and, you know, some questions about his fitness and now he seems again pending Guillaume Brisebois health like he's at least in line to play in game one and Niels Hoaglander because as I counted out like the Canucks really have 12 healthy forwards and then Ilya Mikheyev who's on the road to recovery not an option so kind of by default it seems like Niels Hoaglander is going to get a chance uh, to play in game one for the Canucks as well yeah well I mean I don't I so quickly on Stadnika it's interesting that you know we know that he won one of the jobs to be Vancouver's one of Vancouver's eight top wingers. Mm-hmm. The La- where 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 the Lafferty thing becomes interesting for me is we'd also seen when Pedersen got hurt, right? Studnika was the guy who'd bump in and play center, and so I wonder if ultimately where he felt falls short here is that he's not a convincing enough depth center option. 
right? That's, yeah. That's the other sort of thing that Lafferty really has over him, uh, which is tough because he couldn't have done more. Like, he could not possibly have done more to make this well, team. And- uh, just didn't. And he's also a victim of waiver considerations, right? Because he obviously in the coaching staff's mind, I think they would probably prefer to have Stanika in the lineup over Hoaglander, at least based on how they were running out their lineup late in the preseason. But Hoaglander, obviously a much greater risk with his upside to get claimed than Jack Stanika. Jack Stanika doesn't get claimed. And so he's the one going down to Abbotsford and Hoaglander is going to get a shot to play. And that, you know, we talk about this all the time during preseason, like ultimately as much as it's, there's this idea that it's a meritocracy and I'll come in and win a job, the nitty-gritty financial waiver considerations, they play such an overwhelming role in determining who gets this moment at the start of the season. Well, I, I mean, if if we end up seeing the Canucks opening night, night uh, day lineup a little bit later today and neither Studnika or McWard have made the team, mm-hmm. which I think is relatively likely. Um, you know, McWard, I think, will make the team in one scenario and, and will not in another scenario based on the health of player other players, right? I, I mean, it, it really does emphasize just how set these rosters are ahead of time, how difficult it yeah. is to do what, you know, some local kids in like Minton and Benson have managed to do in their with their respective teams. Like actually making an NHL team is yeah. incredibly difficult. And with that said, you know, you hope that a guy like Studnika who goes down, I mean – if he's a point per game plus player and is still throwing the body, <laughs> it won't be long before oh, no. he's back. No, it certainly won't because injuries happen, things happen, and he will get a look with the way he played. And I think what Rick Tockett had to say about him, it won't be long uh, before he gets that chance. Um, we're going to take a break. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Some very interesting Thanksgiving audio from 32 Thoughts from Elliot Friedman concerning the Canucks and Elias Pettersson uh, that I want to play on the other side. I also want to throw this question out to you, Drancer, and to the listeners. What, if anything, did we learn about the Canucks from the preseason and training camp? Now that it is in the rearview mirror, we can close the book on uh, that I'm segment of the calendar. Did we learn anything uh, about think, this team? I think we did. I've been thinking about it all weekend, uh, and I'm excited to get into that and also play some uh, Friedman audio and and discuss the the Petter like we'll do we'll do what five minutes of Pedersen fear mongering yes. and then get into what we learned <laughs> get into what we learned absolutely <laughs> all right that's coming up next it is Canuck stock here on Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 Thanksgiving edition. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for making us a part of your holiday Monday. We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. You can text in, uh, what did we learn about the Canucks? I feel like I'm stepping on Halford and Bruff's toes a little bit here, but uh, what did we learn about the Canucks through preseason and training camp now that it is over? Going to play some Friedman audio here in a second too, Drancer, but uh, how about those deals 
in Winnipeg that just dropped as we were going to break uh, at that last segment. Mark Shifley and Connor Hellebuck signing matching seven-year, 8.5 million AAV extensions after uh, much, much talk of what their next deals would look like if they were going to be traded, but they sign long-term deals to stay in Winnipeg, uh, and those would both make me very, very nervous if I was a member of the Winnipeg Jets front office, considering they're both 30 years old signing those deals. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting context for the clip we're about to play mm. because we've seen with Ross Misdalen, right? And mm-hmm. now Hellebuck and Shifley, like this is a leverage point this week for teams to use, mm. right? And, and why? Because hockey is a dangerous game. It's yep. a collision sport played with a weapon in your hand or a potential weapon in your hand um, and knives on your feet in which players move, what, 20 kilometers an hour faster than the fastest human being can run <laughs> in a confined space on a unnecessary, well, not unnecessary, very necessarily harder than normal ground surface, right? I mean, it's a very dangerous yep. game. And the p- player contracts, SPCs, are guaranteed. Yeah, they can get bought out, but at a, at a pre-approved, pre-negotiated two-thirds clip. It's guaranteed money. And when you're a player, you know, having that guaranteed money means a lot. Going into a season, playing out the final year of your deal is extremely risky, right? Exceedingly risky because any anything can happen in terms of players' health, right? Any Any moment can occur where your career is changed in an instant. These players, when they step on the ice, the sheet, you know, wearing steel on their feet, um... They take a lot of risks, and they know it. Like, they know it. Like, players know, uh, especially if they've been around long enough, that, you know, serious medical situations arise yeah. over the course of a, of a season. So teams often are able, especially if they, you know, make the types of offers that Winnipeg has clearly made to Shifley and Hellebuck here, uh, teams know that this is a good time to test a player, to see, you know, how, how willing they are to take that risk going into a final year. And, and very often, um, very often, this is, a, this is a productive time to do a deal. I think that's what we've seen in Winnipeg. One last item of Canucks relevance from this, Winnipeg now enters the season with far, far better vibes than we ever would have imagined. Yeah, Don't no kidding, think? huh? Yeah. I mean, I mean, all summer I was like, well, you know, I think Winnipeg's probably better than Vancouver on a true talent basis, but man, those vibes are bad. And now, you know, uh, sort of what I would call the fourth best team in the central uh, enters the season with some wind at their back and some certainty about what the future of their franchise looks like. Even if that certainty to me, um, you know, it has, has a, a lot of risk over the long term. Well, one thing I find fascinating also, and, you know, we'll, we'll play the Freeman audio soon here, but when you think about, okay, Winnipeg over the last couple of years, the Canucks over the last couple of years, uh, Calgary in the last offseason, even the Leafs to a little, uh, to a certain extent coming into this offseason, there's been a lot of teams, and these happen to all be Canadian teams, but where you're going into one offseason or, or a couple with expectations of kind of massive seismic changes or a big change of direction, and in a lot of these cases, like, look, the Canucks traded their captain, Bo Horvat, you know, 
uh, the Winnipeg Jets move on from Blake Wheeler, trade Pierre-Luc Dubois. But in all of those situations, there's also it, like it's ultimately come down on the side of inertia or or stasis. You know what I mean? Where yeah, you know what? Maybe it looked like we we're going to trade Hellebuck. Maybe we we're going to trade Shifley. But actually, we're going to stay the course. We're going to commit to them. We're going to keep doing Winnipeg Jets things, right? And that's kind of what we've seen in Vancouver. Kind of what we've seen in Calgary. Now there's talks Lindholm and Hannafin might want to sign there. And I do find that fascinating. I don't know if that it's a dynamic particular to Canadian teams, if it's because of the flat cap, but there's this kind of inherent inertia where even when it seems like bridges have been burned or there's no road back, like the extension is always kind of the most likely option in the NHL. You know what I mean? It's like, you know what? Let's just figure this out. Let's not take a risk. Let's not try to force a trade where we're getting 75 cents on the dollar. Let's just stick with what we know. It feels like both teams and players that's where they're most comfortable. That's the most comfortable result for everyone. I think this is another example of that. It's a deeply conservative league in terms of yeah. how everyone operates. All right, let's let's get to okay. the um, let's get to the interesting. So stuff. this is Elliot Friedman, uh, obviously doing the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast with Jeff Merrick, released today, and it was their thirty two snapshots. So one snapshot for every team in the league ahead of the regular season, and in the Canucks portion, uh, some very interesting, almost offhand comments from Elliot Friedman about uh, where things stand between Elias Patterson and the Vancouver Canucks. Here is Elliot Friedman. I mean, the whole thing was absolutely bananas last year in Vancouver. It was just one fire after another fire. This year, they've had kind of a quieter preseason. They've already made a couple moves between Lafferty and DeSmith. But things generally seem calmer, and we'll see how long that lasts. I mean, the whole Pedersen thing looms large. I think that all takes care of itself. If they have a good season... That takes care of itself. If they convince him he's on the way. And you know what? Like, the other thing I, I would have to say here, and the Pedersen piece, I believe, is going to air on October the 21st. But the thing I'll say here is that what's been interesting about it is since Pedersen came out and said, I'm not sure yet, I think the Canucks have also kind of indicated, you know what? We're not sure either. Because if there's any doubt that Pedersen wants to make a commitment, I'm not convinced that they want to make a commitment. So this will be a fascinating development. So that's Elliot Friedman talking about uh, where the Canucks point of view might currently be on Elias Pedersen and saying that, you know, after it came out that Pedersen was maybe a little unsure of making a commitment, maybe the Canucks have become a little unsure about making a commitment to Elias Pedersen. And I'm kind of of two minds on this. I mean, I think on the one hand, anytime you get a report from Elliot Friedman that the Canucks might be wavering at all or have any sort of doubt about a long-term commitment from take it to, the to bank. Elias Pedersen, well, one, take it to the bank, but also that's just inherently interesting, important, something that's important to note, right? Like it just inherently is, it matters when you hear that because the Elias Pedersen situation is so important. He's so good. All of those things, it matters. But even in the way he frames it, Kind of inherent in that is the idea that, well, if Elias Pettersson was to change his mind, the Canucks' doubts would be alleviated. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, so the, the Canucks have doubts because Elias Pettersson has maybe been a little bit reluctant. But if that reluctance went away, to me, it sounds like the Canucks' reluctance would go away pretty quickly. It doesn't sound like there's a situation here, to me at least, just reading between the lines and, you know, kind of taking stock of what Elliot had to report. It doesn't sound to me like these are independent 
of how Elias Pettersson is currently feeling. Like there's like a souring on the player or anything like that. No, but we've gone over this and and it's worth going over again where you, you know, if you go through the recent history of Pettersson in Vancouver from the time he got hurt after the bubble, but even before then, Mm -hmm. really you leave the bubble and he becomes extension eligible in early October and the team makes no effort, you know, partly because of financial constraints to get, Deals done with him and Quinn Hughes early, right? Pedersen gets hurt. Team gets COVID. Season goes off the rails. Um, the team doesn't make an effort to go long term with Pedersen that summer, right? Uh, not that they make no effort to do so, but that the divide was the, you know, in, in some ways um, that very much so the team preferred shorter term or at least preferred the cap number attached to a shorter term deal uh, at that time you then have the, him play poorly uh, toward the end of the green era Boudreaux comes in management is not over the moon in their praise of him when Rutherford's introduced uh, when Alvin says the team doesn't have any superstars multiple coaches now none of them use Pedersen in tufts with with discipline uh, although he does begin to kill penalties a little bit um, you know, JT Miller gets a face of the franchise type extension. Quinn mm-hmm. Hughes gets the C. Pedersen seems lukewarm about committing to the franchise. And that brings us to today. So, you know, I one thing I would suggest anyway is that the organization having some sort of doubts, uh, not necessarily a new thing in and of itself either, right? Like the idea that it's a product of Pedersen's posture and not something that we can easily pick up if we just look for the breadcrumbs on the way. Um, you know that that I'd sort of quibble with too. Like I think there've been there has been some notable reluctance almost every step of the way, really since the club left the bubble. Yeah, yeah, and I mean I guess that the thing is that extends to a different management group, right? So it's hard, like it's hard for me to say that that has been carried on by this management group. Maybe this reporting indicates that it has, that they, that they share some of those uh, concerns. We'll, We'll have to see where it goes. I guess the other thing for me is like one resolution to where the Canucks and the Pedersen and Pedersen stand right now. And it's what we just saw in Buffalo, right? Where, we're going to give you the deal, right? Like we are going to make it impossible for you to refuse by giving you eight years at a really, really good number, $88 million. You can't say no to that. So you're going to sign. Boom. We get it done. This suggests that maybe the Canucks are not fully comfortable with going down that road, right? Like making the proverbial godfather offer where, okay, look, we know we want this guy here. He's playing hard to get. Let's just get it out of the way. Let's back up the Brinks truck and give him whatever it takes to sign him. That's one option teams have. That's like, that's a, a card they can play in this scenario. And I guess my reaction to the reporting from Friedman would be, doesn't sound like that's something the Canucks want to explore right now, that maybe there is still a bit of a wait and see approach here. And can they, figure out another option down the road with Elias Patterson rather than just, you know, I don't, I don't want to say giving him a blank check, but you know what I mean? Giving a kind of maximalist offer that, that makes it really, really hard for him to turn down. Yeah. Uh, that would surprise you, right? If in the next 48 hours that happens, it would like, be, we'd be more surprised by that than Shifley Hellebuck. Well, right? it would be very surprising, especially now, <laughs> like especially after hearing <laughs> that. That's what I mean, right? Like th- that's kind of my, okay, well, now I'm not definitely not going to expect that after hearing it about hearing that in, from Friedman. Unless it's a targeted salvo that's like, hey, sure. but, you know, if you change your mind and commit, I mean, yeah. 
This could, there could be this kind of deal here for you, but yeah. oh, we're not sure right now. We need to hear it from you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that's the other important caveat here, right? Is that the, these T- things tell are him, Tell strategic. him that if he calls me, I might call him back. <laughs> I do kind of get the vibe of like, you know, you're like on the you're on the playground in like elementary school and it's like, hey, do you want to play on the monkey bars with me? And the other kid's like, no. And then they're but if they change and you're like, well, fine, I don't want to play with you either. But then if they change their mind, you're like, OK, cool, let's play in the monkey bars together. Like, that's kind of the dynamic I'm getting here where it's like, oh, you you don't want to sign here. Well, we have questions about you now, too. So how do you like that? Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> look. There's only so much Pedersen negotiation tit for tat, especially since both sides have been so restrained about what they're mm. willing to say publicly uh, that I have appetite for. So let's let's bookmark it. Um, obviously, we'll pay close attention to it all season. I would think that this opens the door again for Pedersen to be asked about it. <laughs> so we'll get another Pedersen clip. I mean, the, this this particular beast is going to get fed all season long. I, I don't feel the need to fatten it up. I, uh, I do. But just before we move on, I do love uh, Derek from Maple Ridge texting in. Hey, boys, my question is, what do you think they could get for Pedersen? We're not doing that, Derek. We're not doing that. We're a long, long way from that. I get where you're coming from, uh, but we're not doing that just yet. So that's the update on Elias Pettersson from Elliot Friedman. Um, I, uh, I I threw it out there before the break. What, if anything, did we learn from the Canucks preseason and training camp? I have a thought, Drancer, but you sounded very excited to share your thought about what we have learned uh, well, from the Canucks. So go ahead. I, no, I would just say I've had a real sense of doom at this time of the year, the last two seasons that I find is absent mm. when I try to really close my eyes, project what I expect and be objective about this team. You know, I do think despite some unfortunate injuries in the last couple of games, like I do think this was a placid training camp. Elliot Friedman hinted at it. Yep. I think he's right. Um, I think this has been a pretty functional training camp for the most part. I mean, there's still been moments where the lack of a practice facility rears its head. There's still been some unfortunate um, circumstances. There's still been some trades that irked me. But for the most part, this has been a pretty functional training camp. And I do think that this club has materially raised its floor um, on the penalty kill, on the back end, at center, so that at, at least some of my big picture concerns about where they're going are allayed. Like I I don't expect the bottom to fall out on this team the way I really did going into the last two seasons. And to me, that matters. Like to me anyway, as I analyze this team, that matters because I'm certainly not confidently projecting disaster or anything. I'm, I'm not confidently projecting a ceiling case either right Uh, one thing i'd one thing i'd note too is that the club's upside case right like mikhaev's back uh you know early in training camp and plays in the preseason and looks like he's full speed and is gonna you know pod colson and hoaglander making Mm. some of that stuff hasn't happened either but if this team's even close to its baseline level that's going to be so much better to open the season than what we've seen the last two years uh, that it'll feel in this market like a win. Now it's not a win, right? It's not enough, but it, but it is something. And, and as I think through the Pacific in particular, right? I do think there's three teams out of Vancouver's weight class. I, I still like Cal- Seattle to exceed their true. Like I feel more confident in Seattle exceeding their true talent level than I do Vancouver just because of the, 
team speed, the way they play, the amount of puck moving they have on the back end, and the fact that when injuries crop up, they're calling up like Shane Wright or Riker Evans, who aren't just like injury fill-ins, but might dramatically alter that team's overall talent base. Like, I I just think Seattle's got a stronger upside case than Vancouver, but I also think Vancouver's got a higher baseline level of talent given their star players and the ages that they're in. And watching Calgary in the preseason, and I don't want to read too much in a preseason, it did feel like Calgary, who played eight preseason games, was going through the motions a little bit more than Vancouver was. But one thing I can't help but escape in the back of my head is, while I like Calgary's players, I think losing Shillington, Oliver Shillington, um, has really harmed them in terms of their ability to dynamically carry the puck from the back end up, right? Like I think Calgary has some of the same problem that Vancouver does. Maybe a maybe a less uh, or sorry a less extreme version yeah. of it than Vancouver does when Quinn Hughes uh, isn't on the ice. But at least Quinn Hughes is on the ice, <laughs> like uh, for a lot of the game. Yep. You know, like at least at least Vancouver has a guy who. You know, in that one goal game, in that, you know, 2-2 game, when you need a difference maker, is going to gain the line himself and make something happen from the back end. Like, I don't see Calgary having that guy. And, and that, to me, really causes me to be less confident than I have been in the past about Calgary's bounce back. I still think Calgary is going to be, you know, solidly a 90-plus, 90-to-95-point team at least. Uh, with with an upside case to be more than that if their goaltending truly bounces back. But that's not materially different than how I would handicap the Canucks going into this season. Um, So as I think through what we saw this preseason, like what what did I learn? I I don't know that I learned anything yet, but but I certainly haven't... I'm certainly not coming out of it with the same confidence that this team was overmatched that I have in the past two years. And I think that's largely what the team was trying to accomplish this offseason. Yeah. So I'd say, hey, I think they I think they achieved it. I, I don't see an upside case for this team to be a contender, but I certainly see a, 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 I certainly see the case for them to be what they were built to be this year. Well, I think and that's the first time in years I've felt that the way. point about hopefully preventing the bottom from falling out. And I look at, you know, Bluger, Suter, throw Lafferty Lafferty in the mix now, Ian Cole, Carson Soucy when he's healthy, like if the PK isn't improved with all of those additions targeted at improving the PK, I would be really surprised. Not that it's going to be a strength of the team or anything, but just if you don't, if, if the if the defensive floor hasn't been raised on the PK and, you know, also just in general, I'm going to be pretty surprised uh, given the additions they've made. Quickly, I'll say the one that I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot over the weekend. And I think my big takeaway is Rick Tockett, is willing, you know, when he talks a lot about the style and the identity he wants, and I think he has shown he is willing to prioritize fit and identity over pure talent when he is assembling his lineup and he's assembling his roster, right? And we've seen that. I think the most notable example is Phil Giuseppe being stapled in to the second line, but we've seen that, you know, with Cole McWard, obviously as the right-handed defenseman getting a shot for so long with Quinn Hughes. Now it's Philip Ronick, also a right-handed guy instead of uh, Ian Cole or Carson Susie. I think we've seen that over and over again with the lineup decisions and the things he's been willing to try out that Rick Tockett has made that, and, and this, look, I'm not 
saying that this is a bad thing. I think it has risks, but I can also understand why you're looking to really be firm about building that identity. But that's my big takeaway, right? Is, you know, we heard that early in training camp. Oh, I really want to go right shot, left shot. And he has stuck to that, right? We've heard all the talk about the four checking north, south, all of that. And you can see it play out time after time in his lineup decisions. And I think when we're just thinking about, okay, how are the Canucks going to react to injuries? How are they going to react if they're on a bit of a losing streak? Like go back to those principles that Rick Tockett has emphasized over and over and over again. Cause I think he's shown us through preseason. That's not just window dressing. That's not just talk. He believes it. And he's willing to select players, choose players, move them up in the lineup on those basis instead of necessarily pure talent or pure upside. That's a good take. Yeah. The, <laughs> I mean, we had a text in actually from Tyler who said, was it Tyler? Oh yeah. All we learned is how the blue line is looking like the biggest problem for the Canucks dot, dot, dot still. Right. And I think that's fair. I think like, it's fair. I, I you look think, at My- Myers potentially I, I, in the top four, Hiroshi and Juleson on the bottom pair like that. I think that's absolutely fair. I will say though, Hiroshi being in the lineup gives them a pretty direct route to having the sort of puck moving that I think they need. Right, like mm. at the end of the day, you know, like I I've loved what I've seen from Ian Cole. Right, just like solid. Not that it's a surprise to me. Ian Cole's my type of depth defender. Uh, solid through and through. Smart thinks the game. Here's the thing about Ian Cole. Ian Cole thinks the game mm. at like a really high end NHL level. He doesn't necessarily have like the physical attributes to play as a high end NHL player, but he thinks the game at a high end NHL level. It's evident in everything he does. Um, anyway, my point being that I can think that about Ian Cole and still worry about a guy with his foot speed in the lineup, in addition to Susie, in, addis- in addition to Myers, in addition to Juleson, um, you know, and then think, okay, Hughes and Hironic might be able to move the puck, but do you have enough otherwise, right? At the end of the day, Susie's a much better player today than Ikido Hirose is, but Hirose can move the puck. And when this team can move the puck, even when their personnel is lagging, I think it looks so much better. I think it changes what they're able to accomplish up front. So, like, Hirose being in the lineup in some ways, I think I think's a good thing. I think he needs to be in the lineup. Uh, all right, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to go dig into a, a big plate of turkey gravy and dinner rolls and wash it down with some apple pie. I can't wait. Have a great Thanksgiving Monday. We'll be back with a full show tomorrow. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah, they're up next with an early edition of Canuck Central. Happy Thanksgiving. It is Sportsnet 650.